0: Athanasius was born in 295 in Alexandria. Um, was um, sort of in the early stages of this Arian controversy. He was serving as a deacon um, and was the secretary to, if you remember, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, being sort of the, the opponent of Arius at the sort of at the beginning of this controversy. Athanasius was his secretary, so he participated in the. Well, he accompanied his bishop to Nicaea. Um, he wasn't a bishop yet so he didn't you know vote but he was there and he um, wound up succeeding Alexander as the Bishop of Alexandria um, in around the year 328. He had a, a, certainly an eventful um, eventful reign as bishop. Um, he was a leading, A leading uh, voice for the Orthodox view, a leading opponent of Arius, but his outspoken nature, you know, often put him at the center of controversy, and so he was he was banned, banished, I should say, um, five times during the course of his episcopacy. and so it was not a smooth, it was not smooth sailing for Athanasius. Um, however, again, as I say, he was you know, one of the really um, leading voices against Arius and in favor of the, the definition proclaimed at the Council of, uh, of Nicaea. Arius, I'm sorry, Athanasius, you know, maintained in a kind of simple way of, of looking at it that This was really a question about salvation and, um, you know, in one place, Athanasius writes, Christ was made human that we might become divine. In other words, if if Jesus wasn't sort of fully God, if you will, Athanasius couldn't figure out how his death and resurrection would be salvific. I, I mean, that's, you know, for him, that was the heart of the matter um that and so he thought Arianism didn't really give a basis for salvation um because it didn't you know sort of rectify the situation of humanity vis a vis God if Jesus himself wasn't wasn't also sort of fully God's son. Um and so uh you know this this was of utmost importance obviously. So you know, it's funny because in the, in a, you know, even in Vidmar, but a lot of times we have this this sense that um, between the Council of Nicaea, one sec, between the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381 that, you know, maybe a couple things happened, but somehow we get to Constantinople In 381 and the council basically seems to just like affirm what nicaea had 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 approved and then you know added on to it a little bit but really what's going on in that 56 55 56 year period is a tremendous amount of ongoing controversy and and sort of arguing about this question about the same the same set of questions that know, Arius had raised and that the Council of Nicaea thought to resolve. And one of the, the things that the Arians did in the aftermath of the Council of Nicaea, is that they sort of, you know, waited and and, and looked for opportunities to um, soften the definition, if you will, of Nicaea, and, and try to express what they said was a similar concept but in, in different language. And so um, the, the key person here, well, yeah, besides Arius obviously was very important, but, but arguably the key person in advancing sort of the Arian cause continued to be Eusebius of Nicomedia, um, who was deeply, deeply um, opposed to Athanasius. You know, he thought Athanasius was kind of a loudmouth and, and and really didn't like him. And Eusebius uh, was sort of a smooth political operator in many ways, and he he ingratiated himself with Constantine. And, you know, we we saw Constantine last time really wanting unity as as sort of a hallmark of his reign, and that included religious unity. And so Eusebius, you know, eventually kind of uh, becomes on decent terms, on kind of friendly terms with Constantine, um And over time kind of works him to a position of uh, in, in some ways backing away from the Nicene decrees. So um, for, for uh, example, you know, a few years after the council, Eusebius of Nicomedia presents Constantine with um, a, a different creed, a slightly different creed. Than what the council had approved, and it was basically sort of silent on the question of, you know, is it homoousios or homoiousios? It just didn't even go near. It didn't even seek to answer the question. is is God, you know, of the same? Is God the Father of the same substance or of a similar substance with the Son? It just it just omitted that entirely. Um, Constantine, you know, at sort of at the persuasive um, convincing of of Eusebius, Constantine kind of came to believe that that this new creed was more or less a, a, a sort of acceptance of what the Council of Nicaea had done. It certainly was it certainly was a rejection of Arianism because un, you know it didn't it wasn't an Arian view. It just it was just silent on the key question, which is like how do we understand the nature of the second person of the Trinity, basically how do we understand Jesus. It just it just sort of avoided that and for Constantine you know he's not a theologian and so to him it seemed you know kind of good enough and he, he sort of um, rescinds the the decrees banishing Eusebius and, and even Arius um, and then Eusebius says something clever which he said now the Constantine is sort of open to the softer the softer definition um, Eusebius says, well, you ought to get Athanasius to agree to this. And, of course, Athanasius, who was sort of more capable theological mind, um, uh, won't go along with it. And, moreover, uh, Constantine says, well, look, Eusebius says this is okay. I think it's fine. And Constantine tells Athanasius that he ought to restore Arius Um, to his position in Alexandria because remember this whole thing started because you had Arius who was a priest in Alexandria going up against the bishop Alexander of Alexandria now Athanasius has succeeded Alexander as the bishop so Alexander's the bishop I'm sorry Athanasius is the bishop of Alexandria and Arius is sort of like his exiled priest but Constantine says you ought to restore Arius to his status to his sort of ability to to be a priest in alexandria because you know they've agreed to this sort of alternate definition which at least gives up their view that god that christ was the creature you know there was a time when he was not or however you want to word it eusebius probably knew what would happen next which is that athanasius refused to do this i mean he, he thought it was a total capitulation that it was completely wrong um, that was overturning, essentially, the will of the council. And so Athanasius refuses to restore areas. Just sipping my coffee for suspense, dramatic pause. <laughs> um, and so what happens next is Constantine is sort of irritated now, and he sees Athanasius as you know, like the obstacle to peace and unity. And so um, this ultimately leads to uh, one of, one of Athanasius's banishments, as well as the restoration of Arius. So under Constantine, um, under, just just to be clear, you have the Council of Nicaea with Constantine, you know, in attendance, you get the definition homoousios, You get the condemnation of Arius. But also about 10 years later under Constantine you have the banishment of Athanasius, the great defender of the council and the order of restoration for Arius and actually it's on the eve of uh, his sort of restoration there there was going to be a formal ceremony to um, reintegrate Arius into the church in Alexandria on the eve of that ceremony, Arius died. So it's, I mean, sometimes it's thought that he was so sort of like excited to have been vindicated and whatever that, um, that, uh, you know, he died of that excitement. You know, there's another sort of more, I don't know, apologetic based or or some kind of view that like God strikes down heretics when he chooses and, you know, before Arius could reclaim his position uh, as as a priest in good standing, you know, he died. I, again, I, I don't really want to weigh in on that aspect of it, except to say chronologically, um, you know, you have this sequence of events where Constantine kind of shifts, and with him, shifts the exact location of orthodoxy within the church. And... I'm going to pause here in a second, but I hope, or the reason I should say that I'm kind of going into this story and, and trying to, and it may seem like belaboring it a little bit, is because I, it's, I think it's important to notice just how influential a figure, Constantine, was in this saga. Because he could pressure, for example, the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, to restore Arius, and then if Arius, or then if Athanasius refused... You know he could he could pressure other bishops to exile Athanasius. He exerted, even Constantine exerted a tremendous amount of influence over the church. Now I want to be very careful and, and be clear that I'm not saying that you know the church wasn't. Um, being led by the successors to the apostles or that it was somehow, you know, no longer under the guidance of the Holy Spirit or, or anything. I'm, I'm not making any claim along those lines whatsoever, except to say that as a sort of pr- practical matter and, and looking at the, the historical development, it's, um, I think noteworthy how influential and important the emperor was. And we'll see that in the whole history of the church, well, not the whole history, but for a large section of the history that we're now entered into, the role of the emperor in, or the king, as it may be in later times, in, in specific church controversies is often, if not decisive, it's often one that can be highly influential. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's really important. It speaks to this concept of Caesaropapism that we mentioned last time. And it also speaks to the overall theme that, you know, I keep hammering about what is the relationship of sort of the church to society at large or the culture at large? And how does, um, how do those two sort of, um, uh, existences coexist or not, you know, the church and I, it's, you could say the state, I mean, that's a little bit imposing a modern term, if you will, on a, on a. Thing that didn't really exist in that form, but how did the church exist along with sort of the secular society, in a sense? So Constantine plays a huge role, and about 10 years after the Council of Nicaea, I, I think it's fair to see the Arian view, the Arian uh, sympathizers having rolled back some of the, the, um, the victory, if you will, that had been achieved by, um, you know, the view Athanasius was defending at, at the Council of Nicaea. All right, let me pause there. Does that make sense? You know, the the logic of the sort of the argument here, are you following? Do anyone have any questions or, or comments? Oh. I'm sorry, Dr. Dan, what was the last statement you just made? You said the Aryan sympathizers helped. Well, I think I, uh, somebody can correct me too if I'm, I'm wrong, but I think what I was saying is they kind of rolled back Some of the the um, specific, let's say, theological assertions of of the Council of Nicaea, such that you didn't, like, in 335, just to make it concrete, you didn't have to necessarily. You didn't. You did not have to affirm in the year 335 that um, you did not have to affirm in the year 335 that that the father and son are homoousios it would have been an acceptably orthodox position to sort of adopt this um, this other position that was just totally silent on the matter that wasn't arian it wasn't you know what we'll come to call orthodox it just it just avoided it and to constantine that was kind of a good enough solution it, it almost maybe was more appealing to constantine in some ways because it seemed to satisfy most people on both sides. But obviously, you know, that was from a sort of more of a political perspective than a theological one. Okay. Okay. Um, Constantine dies in uh, 337. He was, as I think I mentioned last time, he was baptized, you know, pretty close to his death. By, Euse- by Eusebius of Nicomedia, the, the, the Arian bishop, who had really become his one of his you know closer advisors. Um, you know I'll kind of cut parts of the story out, but Constantine when he dies, there are three sons. He has three sons, um, and the one of them dies within two years or so. So. Really, in the aftermath of Constantine, you have um, two his two two remaining living sons, kind of dividing up the, the Roman Empire east east and west. Um, the the two The name of the two sons uh, was uh, were sorry, uh, Constans and Constantius. Uh, let me just type those in. Sorry very creative. Um, Constantius, Constance, were the two living sons. The the third son who died um, was surprisingly named Constantine II. Um, So his three sons were Constantine, Constantius, and Constance. Which always makes me think of George Foreman, right? Didn't George Foreman name all his kids like George or something like that? Or some version of George? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) so anyway, we're, what we're left with sort of a few years after Constantine's death is the empire is divided between Constantius and Constans. Um, just to make things fun, you know, they're each kind of partisans of the, the one or the other view in this, in this controversy. Um, and so Constans tended to be more sympathetic to, like, Athanasius, in the sort of orthodox view, while Constantius, um, Constantius tended to be much more sympathetic to uh, the Arian position uh, and, and Eusebius. So, uh, you know, this this controversy is going to continue to play out under the two sons of Constantine. Ultimately, the next sort of really um, key development happens after – well, so what will happen next in this sort of political story is Constance um, was was actually sort of uh, the subject of this elaborate assassination plot and eventually was – was murdered, and, you know, this rival rival claimant to the throne in the West had, had arranged this plot and had Constance murdered. And so Constantius uh, winds up consolidating power and in the, by the 350s Constantius is now the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. He's also the one who's sympathetic to Arianism. While it I'd say there's some debate as to the extent to which Constantius really, kind of like his father, the extent to which he really cared about these issues, it's it's unclear or how much he understood them. Um, it's it's certainly possible that that he, you know, was really looking for some solution that would stop um, a situation of strife, argument, and disagreement, you know, throughout the empire and split splitting. The, the religious leaders of the church. Um, Constantius, you know, really did not like Athanasius. He thought Athanasius was basically a troublemaker, that he was, you know, the the main obstacle to a solution to, you know, sort of end things. And, um, uh, you know, that, that he was really the heart of the problem. So he once again sort of exerts, um, influence over the church to condemn Athanasius. And this happens at a number of regional synods, if you will, in the 350s, whereby um, you know, these local synods, regional synods, I should say, condemn Athanasius and his, and his views. There's a lot of question, again, about how free these sort of bishops were um, especially in the West, to you know, to, to say and to vote the way they really felt. So, for example, I don't know if you remember. Um, hopefully, you do. You remember um, Hosius, Cordova in Spain, the the bishop uh, from Spain who was, you know, also one of Constantine's key advisors. At one point, under Constantius, Hosius um, kind of goes along with. Uh, a view that that seems to repudiate Athanasius, and it, again, it just seems very unlikely that um, you know Hoseus really. It, there's not a lot of strong evidence that he really changed his mind so much as that he um, you know felt like he was being pressured by the emperor to to go along with you know the party line, if you will. Okay. Um, so by uh, in the year sorry in the year 357 a decree was issued and the emperor was actually involved in the decree which again gives you a sense of his role in the church a decree was issued um, forbidding or prohibiting the use of the word usios or usia meaning substance in any in any of its forms, uh, to, to, you know, to speak to this, so it was like prohibited for a bishop or a priest or a theologian or whatever to either say homoousios or homoiousios. It was just you couldn't you couldn't use it at all. So you see what's happening is, you know, Constantius is kind of trying to eliminate the dispute by avoiding it entirely. Eventually, we get. Um, a new sort of uh, a new creed, if you will, or document, where it says we say that the Son is like the Father. So the Son is like the Father. That's as, and that's as far as it went. The the word there was homoion, homoi, sorry, hang on. or homoios, I should say. Can I um, to a quick question? Does this have to do with the filioque uh, controversy? No, not yet. That's that's actually a separate thing. Yeah. Okay. Right. In other words, homoios was like, remember, homoousios versus homoousios was essentially like a prefix, and then this word usios, which meant substance, smushed together. Now we've dropped the substance question altogether and it's just the son is like the father, homoios or homoiad, and and that's that's what Constantius sort of approves as like the official definition or like the, the official answer to to how to understand this. Do you see the difference? Absolutely. Okay. Okay, yes. good um so that's uh, like 357 when when we see this this um, declaration issued and you know really for the next uh 20 25 years almost the you know the battle will go on because even though you have this <clears throat> seemingly like uh compromise oriented position it doesn't, once again, answer the question that had been raised, you know, way back at the beginning by Arius, which is, you know, how exactly do we understand it? Just to say that the son is like the father, um, you know, wasn't wasn't quite clarifying enough. For an emperor, it, it was clarifying enough. You know, for theologians, for bishops, it, it tended not to be. Um, and so the debate really does continue on even though you know the emperor emperors now had hoped that this would be settled and and it and it won't be resolved until um ultimately until the council of constantinople in the year 381 but before we get you know to the council itself if you will it's important to highlight um contribution made by the so-called cappadocian fathers who really um promoted if you will the kind of like the nicene understanding so the cappadocian fathers i I, um, list them on the three that i want to mention here are on your outline basil of caesarea um Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzus. So Cappadocia is a region, it's like a regional uh, name. It's like an area that includes a number of different cities in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey for the most part. Um, um, And so Basil of Caesarea was, um, you know, a, a tremendously well-learned individual he kind of lived like a like a monk for a while um and, and was an important link in the development of monasticism which we'll we'll get to in a little bit um but he was probably a little bit too uh i don't i don't know restless maybe isn't quite the right word but he he wasn't really cut out for the sort of the contemplative life he was a very kind of active guy he wanted to be in the middle of things, and that included this, you know, this ongoing conversation. Uh, you know, Basil had studied um, origin, he'd studied a number of, uh, you know, the, the key thinkers, and eventually uh, sort of came around to Athanasius' view after kind of starting out a little bit closer, probably to Arius, it's thought. You know, he found Athanasius' theological arguments um, convincing, And so he becomes a supporter of that view, uh, eventually becomes um, a bishop in in town or the city of Caesarea, where he would be a key leader. His younger brother was Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa was a great orator. And writer, probably generally regarded as you know, even more skilled as a theologian than his older brother, which makes sense. Um, normally, the youngest child is the most brilliant. Said the youngest of five, um, and so uh, no. So the Gregory of Nyssa was, um, you know, a key, you know, another key sort of proponent of Athanasius's view. And, um, you know, eventually he becomes bishop as well of this sort of small town of Nyssa and is considered, you know, again, for his preaching and, and his writing, He's considered a great father in the Eastern church. And then finally, uh, we have uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, which is also that might be detecting the pattern, the town where he was bishop. Um, Gregory Nazianzus was, um, you know, involved in a number of debates directly about the, these issues and sort of against against um, um, Arius and, and Arianism. And so he was, you know, the three of them together were, were quite outspoken. Eventually Gregory of Nazian, sorry, Nazianzus will ultimately be made um, Bishop of, of Constantinople, which was like a really, was like one of the highest positions, obviously outside of being the Pope in the year 381 the eastern church even uh, sort of the tradition of the eastern church sometimes calls him gregory the theologian or just theologian because his his theological contributions were so were so um, critical so what the sort of the three of these uh, leaders together and and others but especially these three kind of developed was a way of expressing uh sort of an answer to this this question about the trinity that that had that made sense if you will to the eastern mind to the mind that was a little bit more greek trained than latin trained you know you might remember last time when we looked at the council of nicaea you know he said there were something you know 300 bishops or whatever and you know just a handful were from the west the western part of the Roman Empire, most were from the east, um, and most of the action was happening in the east. And the Cappadocian fathers were important because they contributed to, um, they contributed to a way of expressing this very kind of important but complicated um, um, topic in, in language that that the eastern mind could digest a little bit um, more, more easily. If, if you will and again you know you I'm sure I've been over this ground um, before but the the key sort of development here is um, fo- the focus on on it on the expression of um, hypostasis or the plural of that are hy- hypostasis um, for which which they you know it's hard to express this in English right because the words in our in English, all can be sort of interchangeable in some ways, but in, in Greek um, and in philosophical terms, they weren't um, um, precisely interchangeable. And so what the Cappadocian uh, fathers, so how they sort of render it, if you will, are three hypostases in one, who oh, I didn't one in one substance, or three persons in one essence, one substance. There's a quote um, in one of the. Um, I don't think it was a sermon. I think it was actually just a sort of theological writing from Basil of Caesarea, where he writes, "The distinction between usia." And hypostasis is the same as that between the general and the particular as for instance between the animal and the particular man wherefore in the case of the Godhead we confess one essence or substance so as not to give variant definition of existence but we confess a particular hypostasis in order that our conception of father-son and Holy Spirit may be without confusion and may be clear. So again, they're sort of guarding against, you know, the confusion that somehow Christianity or, or that the Trinity is really a claim of tri theism. So it's not that there are three gods. It's only there's only one God in, in the sense that there's only one essence or, or one substance, one God substance. But there are sort of three particular, you know, persons um, of that substance you know, which are the three divine hypostases. We we call them Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you know, again, I think the key point here is they were expressing this in a way using Greek philosophical concepts and sort of the, the Greek philosophical and theological tradition that you know it could gain some traction in the eastern half of the Roman Empire and in the eastern half of the church. Um, You know, what's tricky is that in Latin in the West, um, there's a tendency to translate both both hypostasis and usias as substantia, um, as substance, but there was a difference in the Greek, and and that sort of worked. The West was, was already on board, if you will. If you remember from Tertullian writing in Latin, the West had already kind of come around to the Nicene definition. It was really the East where you were seeing all these struggles, and so the contribution of the Cappadocian Fathers is to sort of provide an uh, an understanding, a way of expressing the sort of Trinitarian, you know, mystery of of the Godhead in, in terms that could be under could be understood and accepted by those in the East, but also seen as an equivalent expression of what was being. Taught and what had been held in the West, all of which is to say, uh, you know, the three Cappadocian Fathers are tremendously important in the Council of Constantinople, which meets in the year 381, um, as the sort of the second general council of the Church, and uh, you know, they revisit a number of the same discussions and arguments that existed uh, at, at Nicaea. They reject. The Aryan view of homoousios and reaffirm, um, you know, the the idea of the same substance homoousios, and they add on, if you will, some aspects to the creed such that the outcome of um, Council of Constantinople is, you know, the creed that we basically say today called the Nicene Creed is really the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which you know you probably have heard before um and 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 so it's really a combination what we say today is really a combination of nicaea plus constantinople although to um oh my window shifted around so now <laughs> uh, who, who who mentioned Filioque earlier i'm sorry oh uh, jim yeah jim you were on the left side of my screen now you're on the right side of my screen um uh to jim's point it it filioque actually, the filioque controversy arises because the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed does not does not include that word. Uh, so, the, just to you know, to jump ahead, right? The controversy is whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or proceeds from the Father and the Son. The nice and the word filioque means and the Son. And the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed just says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. It was, it was silent. It didn't say from the Father alone, and it didn't say from the Father and the Son. It just said from the Father, next line. And so the argument will be, you know, was the later addition of the word filioque to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which probably we start to see, you know, fifth, sixth century, somewhere in there. Um, you know, was that an illegitimate addition to, to the creed or not? Obviously, it will divide east and west to this day. Though, as we'll see, there are you know other issues around the tension between the, the eastern and western halves of the church. Um, so, again, the the Council of Constantinople um, reaffirms Nicaea, you know, strengthens it in some ways, and um, pushes Arianism a, a little bit further towards the towards the the boundary of you know, exile, but not entirely. You know, for all of the arguing and debate that occurred in this, in the 55 year, 56 years between the two councils, you would think maybe, you know, Constantinople resolved it, but it, it doesn't entirely resolve it, and you'll still see Arianism floating around various parts of the empire, including a number of the Germanic tribes, sort of so-called barbarians, will come into the Roman Empire as Arian. Um, because the Aryans at times were effective, and sometimes even better missionaries <laughs> in their in their outreach to these tribes. And so a number of, of the tribes were uh, initially at least were Aryan. So that's uh, but but again, the official you know decision, the conciliar decree of the, the Council of of Constantinople, um, you know, gives us the creed that we have today. Any questions? Um, so the first two of these councils really have a, a sort of primary focus on what we might call the, you know, the, the Trinity or the Godhead or you know, however you want to think about it. It's, it's talking about, you know, what are the relationship, what is the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit, but what wasn't entirely clear and and in fact wasn't really expressed concretely in in the creed if you will uh, you know at nicaea was what is the relationship within jesus christ himself of sort of the, the divine and the human um so that is kind of the the next um the next puzzle if you will to be to be solved the next the next challenge You know, interestingly enough, um, you know, a figure like Athanasius doesn't really say much about this in all of his writing and preaching. Um, You know, the focus really was on the relationship of of the three divine hypostases or persons. It was much less, you know, in the in the early sorry in the first half, first three quarters of the fourth century, it was much less on what we would call properly today, Christology, um, and understanding, you know, understanding who Christ was in the context of the claim that, you know, God became incarnate, which is not an easy thing to understand at face value. I mean, or at least raises some questions, right? If it's not easy to understand, it at least raises some questions as to what what we mean when we say that. So, um, you know, this is this is the, the next controversy to arise. Um, the two sort of focal points uh, around which the debate emerges, um, again, you see from your outline, I talk about Alexandria versus Antioch. And the two figures um, that I think are pretty good representatives of, of the two views here are Nestorius and Cyril. The Nestorius was a priest uh, and monk in Antioch and Cyril was from Alexandria, the bishop of Alexandria. So let's start with Nestori Oh, someone's in the waiting room. Hey Chris. Say again. Chris is trying to get back in. His internet froze. So it. Get back in. but I can't figure out, I mean this isn't I mean if somebody knows the answer to this right away I'd be you know, that's great. Right, if you can just tell me but it used to be, you know, that ding, ding, dong sound that you get sometimes when somebody like signs on to Zoom. It used to be I would get that when somebody was in the waiting room, and then again when they came into the, the main room. But now I, I don't hear any sounds associated with that. Maybe I should explore that a little bit more. Um, so I, it's, it's sometimes if I'm looking down and I don't happen to notice that I got a, a thing that somebody's in the waiting room. But I, hopefully no one's in there too long. Um, Nestorius. So he's from Antioch, actually. Um, you know, goes on to become the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, in 428, you know, he's the bishop of Constantinople, which is again tremendously important position in the church. You know, maybe second in, in prominence only to the to the pope, to the bishop of Rome. Uh, Nestorius was. A man held in extremely high regard as a preacher, um, and generally thought sort of to be a very holy man. And again, I say that because, you know, some people get, you, you know, their their names become attached to heresies, and and it's it's worth, you know, knowing a little bit at least about their life, and and you know whether whether they just had an idea that sort of went wrong or, or whether there was more to it In Nestorius' case you know he was incredibly serious about you know his commitment to the faith and you know was was very well well regarded as a preacher and teacher um, and and even now you know he's one of these things that sometimes in the, in the scholarly literature gets argued about is like sort of to what degree did i oh, I'm sorry did Nestorius, uh, share the views that became associated with his his, um, his name, with Nestorianism. Now, I'm not going to you know dive too much into that for our purposes. Let's just say he held them enough that his followers kind of expounded upon them in, in his name and 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 raised um, you know raised challenges, if you will. So. Nestorius's view, or the view that became associated with Nestorianism, is that, you know, it, it didn't make sense that there could be two natures in Christ, or two persons, if you will, in Christ at the same time. Um, so Nestorius would have, you know, would accept that, you know, obviously, uh, well, maybe it's not obvious, but Nestorius would accept the sort of co Eternal nature of Christ. He wasn't an Aryan, so he's upholding that aspect that you know Jesus was not created, that that he existed for all, all eternity, just as God did or does. Um, so it's not that, but he's saying he exists, you know, from eternity as God. But the incarnation itself, during the incarnation itself, if you will. Um, he exists as man and then after his death uh, to the point you know to the point of his death as man and then he kind of goes back if you will to existing as God it, you know so Nestorius didn't see the space for a sort of dual a sort of simultaneous um, existence so he makes a distinction between sort of god and christ and and during the sort of earthly life the incarnation if you will um, um, you know jesus was a man against and and so this leads you know I, i think this is what we what we generally associate with the council of ephesus in 431 where this debate is heading what we generally associate with is how this applies or how this has Relevance for our understanding of Mary um, and, and titles that were given to her, and and specifically the the view of Nestorius would be that Mary was the, the bearer or the, sort of the birther, but the bearer of Christ, as opposed to saying she was the bearer of God. So that's that's the whole Christotokos versus Theotokos, right? And um, Nestorius's view led him to say, "Well, you know, during that period that you have like a, a baby growing in Mary's womb, and then you know a birth, and 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 this little little boy's growing up, and all that, like that's the Christ, that's a man, that's not it's not, um, you know, the same as saying that Mary is the the God bearer." Now, against that view, we have well, a number of people, but Cyril of Alexandria is. A good person to look at, sort of, was a key, key proponent of, or a key opponent of Nestorius, and he was a, sort of a bitter opponent. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria uh, was the bishop of Alexandria, and um, what's sort of fascinating about him is, in this debate, Cyril of Alexandria is, is, you know. <laughs> Looking back on it from our perspective and you know understanding of the, the development of church teaching, Cyril of Alexandria is on the the right side, right? He's he's he represents the orthodox view on this matter, that instead of uh, a set of Mary being Christotakos, Mary is Theotakos, or God bearer. So he's on the, the the quote unquote right side. However, personally, um, you know there are some not so so glowing and wonderful things about Cyril. Um, you know, it, it, does seem that he, you know, very well may have been motivated at least in part, um, in his opposition to Nestorius by sort of intense jealousy. He just kind of, he seemed to, to hate, um, Nestorius and, you know, again, scholars who study and look at his writings and, and other accounts, you know, of the time. You know, basically, find him to have been a very sort of ambitious, uh, ambitious man, and and you know the fact that that Nestorius becomes the patriarch of Constantinople, you know, really really bothers him and and whatever, and so um, it's it's just interesting that that he's you know on the one hand we have Nestorius who you know by all accounts is sort of a pretty holy man, devout, good preacher, um, but but held the, the errant view here while Cyril holds the proper view but also seemed, you know, driven in part by jealousy and rivalry and, and other, you know, unfortunate um, factors. And and again, the the view of Cyril and others, not just to say that Mary was Theotokos, but to say that the person of Jesus um you know, re- retained, if you will, both the human and divine nature um, during during his life, during his his incarnation. Um, it's also important here to note on this issue, I think, the uh, and again, this is really a you know, this is a a topic that has a lot of weight and importance, and we could spend a whole whole class, like, like a whole course probably discussing it, but the so-called census fidei or census fidelium, you know, is really, this is a very early example of, um, you know, how this sometimes comes into our story, you know, and comes into church history, which is that part of, you know, what, what really heated up this debate was a very sort of widespread denunciation of Nestorius for, for refusing to give Mary the title of Theotokos and saying she was sort of only Christotakos. Because the people, and this, this spanned both west and east, and sort of the common devotional tradition um, of christians in the you know fourth and now fifth century had held that mary was theotokos and so um you know this was a sort of an instance where where popular piety also seemed to anticipate kind of the ultimate decision of the council now look i'm not saying that you know uh, that's the be all end all and, and the popular devotion around a certain issue then decides what the church believes. I mean, I'm not saying that at all, but it is interesting to note, you know, how important and, and seemingly, you know, influential in some ways that, that popular, that sort of, yeah, the popular piety, I think is the best way I want to refer to it, uh, impacted the debate between Cyril and Nestorius and, and so sort of, on the side of, of Cyril. Now, the, the series of events that occurred in 431 that we call the Council of Ephesus are, you know, kind of contested and a little, again, a little unseemly. Uh, we like to think of these, maybe I'm speaking for myself, maybe I'm the only one, but like you tend to think of like these kind of idealized versions of like, oh, look at the church, the early church, and you know, you got all these people getting getting together for a nice meeting, and like they've got coffee breaks, and like you know, uh, everybody's milling around, and you know, you get like some big conference or whatever. Um, and then they come together and they're praying, and they're coming to these nice decisions, and and that's that's how we got our faith, uh, sort of the, the creedal definitions of our faith. But it, it it wasn't quite quite that way in 431. Cyril um, sort of organizes. Um, with the, the emperor uh, to convene a a, um, a sort of uh, yeah a synod, but it winds up being sort of seen as a council to be convened um, in Ephesus in 431. It, it, basically, what had happened in the run up to this, there had been kind of sympathetic bishops to both Cyril and Nestorius had traded denunciations of each other um notably uh, Cyril had secured the um, support of the Pope at the time um, but nevertheless the emperor emperors called for a council in 431 um Cyril and his friends were there pretty quickly they were most of them were nearby and they um, basically convened this meeting to debate you know the issue of uh you know understanding Christ and recognizing that the supporters of Nestorius's view uh, yeah Nestorius's view were not yet there but but were on their way, the bishops who supported this, um, Cyril went ahead and convened the gathering, secured a condemnation, and and then de- and was deposed Nestorius was condemned and deposed on the first day, and uh the council then decreed, um, you know, that well will decree the condemnation of not just the condemnation of Nestorius, but also that it was proper to refer to Mary as Theotokos. A few days later, um, and again, it's thought that this was less than a week, a few days later, a number of Nestorian bishops, including the Bishop of Antioch, a guy called John and, and others arrived and you know you can imagine how this went right Cyril is there's like hey John you know welcome bishops what, you know welcome to our wonderful council of Ephesus so glad you could make it you know there's a continental breakfast and the, the pool is heated it's I've got really good news you know we took care of a lot of business on the first day so everything you believed we've already debated it so, we didn't really need you for that part of the debate. Don't worry, though. We took care of it. We condemned Nestorius and we condemned everything you believe in. Hope you don't mind. So, that didn't go over very well. Um, the, the sort of bishop sympathetic to Nestorius said <laughs> the expression that came to my mind, I can't say, you know, said, so this, is, this is not right. This is, you know, bad. This is wrong. Um, and, and they, um, sort of convene their own little gathering, uh, at the hotel next door. There weren't hotels. I don't know. In my mind, I have this idea that like, they're all taking place at, at, uh, you know, the Hilton or something. But, um, so they have this kind of rival, um, council where they depose Cyril and condemn him. However, the fact that the support of the Pope, um, you know, had been secured by Cyril, and that, um, you know, the emperor, the emperor was kind of at a loss when when they when he learned of what had happened. Um, nevertheless, uh, the, the emperor sort of decided to uphold the results of that first uh, that first gathering, that that really was without a lot of the key Nestorian bishops. Um, Nestorius was exiled, was condemned and exiled as a result. And a, a creed, actually, was uh, the cre- a creed from the Council of Ephesus was uh, sort of another consequence of, of the meeting, uh, which reads: We therefore acknowledge our Lord Jesus Christ, complete God and complete man. The union of the two natures has been made. Therefore, we confess one Christ holy virgin is Theotokos, because God the word was made flesh and became man and from her conception united with himself the temple received from her so that's the council of Ephesus again yeah. historically it is it is messy um, that you know Cyril rushed the, the the gathering you know rushed the proceedings and 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 kind of What's what's so fascinating, right, is twenty years later, um, more or less, something very similar will happen in the opposite direction in the run up to the Council of Chalcedon and it won't it won't be viewed the same way. So it's it's really quite a kind of a messy story. Let me pause there. Are there any questions? Okay, it's eight oh five, but I think it might be helpful. Um, if I, if I cover Chalcedon and then then we take our break we can wrap up the councils um, so the it kind of like I kind of think of this sometimes this, a similar way to how Nicaea you know seemingly resolved the Arian controversy but then kind of not really so you need a second a second council in Constantinople to you know, go over it again and, and really solidify it. In similar ways, the Council of Ephesus doesn't really put to bed the question of understanding, you know, the human and the divine in, in the person of of Christ. So that leads to, you know, after the Council of Ephesus, ongoing debate. Um, and, and the key, one of the key figures um, that kind of picks up um, a leading position from, from kind of what we might call like the, the old Antioch position. You know, I said, you know, you had Nestorius was from Antioch originally, and then sort of like the Antioch school versus the Alexandria school. The, the person who kind of picks up the Antioch, you know, leadership, if you will, is a guy from Constantinople called Eutychius. He's on your outline, but you don't have it put it in a box. These. <sighs> um, was, you know, interestingly, not one of these that was like a super learned, you know, highly sophisticated theologian, but was just seen as um, um, seen as like a, a really holy man, and so, um, you know, he became very popular. He was seen as like a sort of, you know, really a holy um, monk, if you will. He was really an abbot uh, of a monastery, and, um, you know, he was consulted more, or he was sort of reverenced more for his holiness than his theological ability. Eventually, you know. Um, some critics thought that he was teaching heresy, um, because he affirmed and I'll just read sort of the statement that, that he at one point had wrote, I confess that our Lord was of two natures before the incarnation, but after the incarnation, one nature. In other words, that, that, um, Again, it's 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 another way of saying uh, of rejecting the idea that the two natures, the human and the divine, could coexist simultaneously in the person of Christ during you know during his time on earth. Um, and so, Eutyches was is associated very often associated with um, you know a position called Docetism, which I think I mentioned before cheo is the verb to seem or to appear. Um, and so it appeared like, it seemed like Jesus was a man. Um, but that, that was simply uh, an, an appearance, that it wasn't the reality that he was really God. And again, it, you know, in some ways it's, it's interesting because you see them, you know, that position kind of, avoided this, this the error of of arianism that athanasius had identified which is if you say jesus is not really god then it's hard to see what the basis of our salvation is um the docetists kind of took that in a, in a like all the way to the other end of that and just said well it just looked like he was a man um but he really wasn't it was it was just god sort of under the of this appearance, but not not the reality. He didn't take on um, human nature. The opponent here, sort of the great uh, a figure opposed to Unicity and Docetism, is Leo the Great, who or Leo the First, you know, we call him the Great, uh, who was Pope from 440 to 461. Leo writes a very famous letter um, called the Tome in 449, in which he writes, In Christ there were two full and complete natures, which without detracting from the properties of either nature and substance came together in one person. And here we have... um, you know, in, in some ways recalling what we were talking about earlier about about hypostasis and hypostases, um, a union, right, the, the so-called hypostatic union, the, the union of the two, um, com, as, as he says, full and complete natures without detracting from the properties of either came together in one person. What's so interesting about well, I don't know if it's so interesting, but what's striking about Leo's view is, you know, he's basically just—I don't want to say quoting—in that it was it wasn't a direct quote, but he's basically just saying what Tertullian had said, you know, 200 years before. Um, and and a great advantage—and I should make this point because it really kind of matters across—you know—even the last—even the Council of Ephesus—a a sort of great advantage in the Western theological tradition if you if you want to see like the the west and the east during this period of the church church's history is is somewhat divided by sort of their intellectual heritage The, the west was much more uh united on these on these fronts much more in agreement on on understanding the trinity and on understanding the fullness of the human and the divine nature in christ and, and again, I say this is because it's you know he's so often associated with with you know falling into heresy, but the person who played such a pivotal role in laying the groundwork that unites the Western Church um, during the sort of Christological controversies really is Tertullian. Um, and so when Leo is writing his Tome in 449, expressing you know the fullness of the human and the divine nature um, existing in, in Christ. He's, he's really kind of just the latest in the tradition of, of figures following Tertullian's view or Tertullian's Christology so those are the two views essentially you know that that are, are are being promoted as I say something kind of eerily similar to the events of 431 takes place in the year 449. The emperor calls for a general council to meet to again discuss, you know, some of these issues in the year 449. And one of the leading proponents of the sort of the docetist view—it wasn't Eutyches by this time—it was somebody else, um, whose name I, is, is not important. It's not he's not important. But you know, it, it, he the 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 view, the party, if you will, that represented. Sort of Eutyches' view and, and the Docetists basically um, convened a meeting at which they really controlled the proceedings, and they controlled like who was allowed to speak, what testimony was allowed to be sort of given. Um, so, for example, and, and this was seen as you know a really key thing, Leo's Tome, you know that letter where he lays out you know the view, was denied a reading um you know this is the pope you know you're, you're not letting the pope's the bishop of rome's you know writings on this subject be considered as part of the proceedings and so it was kind of to use something more a terminology from more recent times you know if if there was twitter uh, at the time somebody might be tweeting that the synod was rigged it was a rigged synod and um this event in 449 is known to us as the Robber Synod, of Ephesus, or just the Robber Synod, because critics of it said, I'm sorry, not just critics, it was Leo himself who denounced this council as a synod of robbers. Again, because it, it was seemed that it seemed that they didn't, you know, proceed in, in on a fair course of action. So Leo appeals to the emperor and it's actually, the emperor at the time is a guy called Theodosius II. Leo um, sort of struggles um, to convince Theodosius II and unexpectedly, and again, there's no, I'm not suggesting there's anything more to it than just the unexpected timing of the death of Theodosius in the year 450. Raised um, his sister, Theodosius' sister, whose name is Pulcheria, and her husband to sort of the, the leadership of the Roman Empire. And Pulcheria was on sort of unfriendly terms with Leo from from prior to all of this. And so, you know, the the, the robber synod happens in 449. Leo doesn't like it, Theodosius dies in 450, and then the following year, you know, kind of at, at the behest of Pulcheria, the sister of Theodosius II, um, a new council was called that was supposed to be first in Nicaea, then it get, gets moved to Chalcedon, which is not that far away from Constantinople 600 bishops were there, mostly, again, the vast, vast, vast majority, all but a handful were from the east. And this um, council kind of went back over the same issues that had been argued about in Ephesus, uh, well, both in Ephesus and then in the Robertson. This time, you know, Leo's tome was given kind of pride of place, and, and, and it was a much different outcome, um, not just Nestorianism, but the, the position of Eutyches. Docetism was condemned. And we get a creed that's often, well, not often, it's known as the Creed of Chalcedon of or the Chalcedonian Creed, which says, we, the, holy, the following holy fathers, teach men to confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul, reasonable meaning um, of reason, having rationality, soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, meaning people, according to manhood, and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead in these latter days, born of the Virgin Mary, that they had taught us. And then it goes on to say, um, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten in two natures, inconfusibly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, union of the two natures, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurrent in one person and one subsistence or hypostasis. So The two natures, human and divine, um, are pr- both fully preserved and concur, right. you know, happen concurrently in one person, one hypostasis. Not parted or divided, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look, I mean, if you Google Chalcedonian Creed, you can see the whole thing. I, I, I profess the whole thing, but um, like the other councils, it would be you know, not quite right to say it settled all of the, the arguments. It didn't, but it went a long way um, um, for a number of reasons, including sort of political changes that we'll talk about, you know, coming up. There's just a lot of, um, you know, political developments that, that kind of solidify these creedal definitions, as well as the continued marginalization of those that were condemned by the councils, or sort of pushed into exile into the to the margins of society. Um, Okay, any questions? The key thing for me, um, you know, going back to last time with Nicaea and, and going through the first half of the class is like, you know, can I get through these four councils without accidentally committing, you know, like half a dozen heresies? Like, I hope I've successfully achieved that. Um, you know, I always worry that like, Someone's gonna say, "Do you know you, you know, you, 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 you confe- you, you, um, committed like <laughs> four heresies in the in the first hour of your class today? Hopefully not. Um, <laughs> all right, let's. It's 8:20, so let's take a break. Come back at 8:35. Okay. Thanks everybody. Okay. And one. Okay. So, um, now, now that we've sort of treated the council, the, the four early councils together, we're going to look at, um, you know development in the Western Church by way of looking at two, you know, really important figures in, of the 4th and 5th century, Jerome and Augustine and then if there's time turn to um, something that's, you know, related to the development of the Church but kind of on its own, you know, you know it's a, a topic we can explore on its own, which is the development of monasticism and if we don't get to through that then we'll just pick it up you know, next time so, uh, Jerome was, um, you know, arguably one of the the most sort of capable and sort of prolific scholars in the Western half of the of the Church, you know, in, in the early in, in early Church history. Um, you know, I think I said what was the last time about you know how Origen was. You know this just like unbelievably prolific writer and, and Jerome was similarly you know uh, influential and prodigious in his output but you know from the perspective of being kind of stationed in the western half of the Roman Empire you know he, he has a, a larger influence on the development of the western church. Um, he was he was um, you know born to, into pretty decent circumstances, had a good education, was baptized, um, by, by the Pope, you know, the Pope at the time. Um, and, and was, you know, somewhat of a, you know, an interested scholar and and student of, of theology. Um, you know, he, he traveled, um, traveled sort of, uh, all across the Western world, the different, different parts. And even, even to the East, even to like Asia Minor, um, visited a number of cities and, and and kind of just, you know, was a man of, of of very substantial learning. Um, he has this, uh, I don't want to, I mean, it's not a conversion experience in the sense of converting to Christianity, let's say, but it was a kind of experience in terms of, you know, sharpening his focus or turning his attention in a new direction. Um, it's on one of these journeys, um, to Antioch where he has this really, he gets severely ill and and is afraid he's going to die. And he reports having a, a vision of, of Christ. And what's interesting is like the takeaway from this, this vision is that, you know, he had been sort of reproached uh you know criticized for his devotion to the classics the works of you know classical um at the time literature like the the latin the great latin authors cicero and 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 Ovid, and virgil and the like um and and he sees like this as as a kind of you know like a mistake that he's made an error that he's he's spent too much of his time you know reading pagan authors and and you know in today we might say like secular um secular literature um and so he devotes himself sort of wholeheartedly if you will to um you know turning away from those sources and then focusing basically exclusively on the scriptures um He studies, like, all of the the classical languages. Uh, Sorry, the, you know, biblical languages is really what I mean. Um, He learns Hebrew. Um, He, you know, he lives as a hermit for for about six years, where he can really focus on his studies. Eventually, he's ordained a priest. He studies under Gregory Nazianzus, um, and then goes back. Back west to Rome, where he gains influence uh, with the Pope, um, became a preacher, but then also, you know, spent some time living in in the monastery. Um, Eventually, he, you know, continues to, to, uh, you know, sort of travel and learn, and and, and kind of hits the road again. uh, Eventually, going to Bethlehem, to the Middle East. work worked and and lived as the head of a monastery in Bethlehem till he died in the year 420. Of course, his his best um, known contribution is around his translation of Scripture, specifically his translation into Latin. The translation of the Scriptures into Latin. The um. The, the it's you know we don't tend maybe tend not to think about these kinds of things but again like with the somewhat crude way that these texts were often copied and circulated you know maybe even like a little sh- shorthand at times there wasn't really a there was there wasn't always consistency across like the different versions of the Bible that were that were written especially the New Testament that were written in Latin there were a lot of um, Again, sort of inconsistencies across translations. And um, you know this was a problem in the West because you know you could have you know four different uh, copies of of um, you know Paul's letters or the Gospels or something, all of which have you know different, you know somewhat different translations of key things that could potentially render different meanings. And so not all of the trans not all translations are created equal. I mean, I think we know that. And so, you know, there were some pretty lousy ones in circulation. So the Pope at the time got a guy called Pope Damasus, D A M A S U not, S, not that important, but that was his name. Pope Damasus asks Jerome or proposes that Jerome, you know, propo- uh, present, pre- uh, compile, I'm struggling here with the right word, uh, a, a new version that will be a really faithful um, translation into Latin. So he starts with the Old Testament. Um. no he doesn't he starts with the New Testament um, and, and and he prepares that the Old Testament you know and this is a testament I think to Jerome's care for the project you know he wanted to make sure he studied Hebrew uh, he, had, he had learned Hebrew previously but he wanted to make sure he got it right um, so one of the I think you know reasons that he wanted to go to Bethlehem was to be closer to sort of experts in these um in these languages aramaic and and hebrew and and he actually um you know does the, the translation of most of the translation of the old testament in bethlehem you know with the help of some jewish scholars that he befriended you know even and again just to go back um or just to build on his commitment to sort of translating the original um the original text he could have translated the into latin from the septuagint from the greek old testament right that was a pretty standard widely circulated version of the old testament you know widely accepted as a good translation and and if, i think it was augustine so, somebody even sort of encouraged him to just do that um, but he said, "No, I, I, we need to look at the sort of the original, you know, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of them. Like we need to look at them in the original language, not in the Greek." And so he he goes back to the original, um, to the original Hebrew. The result of this, right, is the Vulgate translation translation of the Bible to Latin. this is um, it's, it's not right to say that this is the exact same version that still prevails for the uh, in, in Latin today. There have been some revisions made to Jerome's text um, in the 16th century especially post-reformation era but by and large most of Jerome's translation remains intact I mean we still call the Latin translation of the Bible today the Vulgate and I think that's Proper and, and it is mostly, you know, Jerome's work. Again, I would, you know, it, technically speaking, there are some there are some passages that were revised. Uh, you know, the translations were reworked um, in light of, you know, a better understanding of some aspects of of language that had taken hold uh, you know, 12 centuries later. But but by and large, this was a tremendously important accomplishment that gave to the church and the church in the West would sort of use this version of scripture for, you know, um, 1500. Not quite. No, not you know, 1200, 1300 years. Um, well, maybe even longer. I mean, maybe maybe 1500 is right because we don't really start to see a lot of vernacular translations, you know, until fairly recently in the grand scheme of things. Jerome. Uh, so, in addition to his translation of scripture. Also did write some, some commentaries, um, was a historian, so you know he must have been a good guy, church historian, um, he, he, um, and, and to some degree was a, a bit of a, a, um, a theologian. You know, he wrote some works on celibacy and the advantages of the monastic life. He was clearly like drawn throughout his entire life to the monastery, to monastic life um and, and so he wrote some works on that um but, but also you know to be honest it, it's interesting he you have kind of a couple different sides of him uh, because he was you know a very serious scholar and and focused on this you know translation work and commentaries and theological works on monasticism and everything but then also did have a side that kind of liked to you know mix it up um so he wrote some sort of it got involved in some disputes and sort of some theological disputes and um you know wrote like what's the word you know pieces that were more kind of argumentative or you know things that were more argumentative but in, in the service of of a good you know of something he believed strongly in so for example he writes like there were some people who criticized asceticism i can't remember if i've spelled this word it's just like a weird word um which is like the lifestyle of you know self-denial right of a monk but you don't have to be a monk to be ascetic. you know you live simply you know you maybe have you know very simple meals you know you have water and and bread or or something and I mean today it would obviously look different um you you wear simple clothes you know um you know just like sweatpants and a t-shirt um You know, you just sort of live simply. You forsake any extravagant possessions and whatever. So there were some people who criticized, um, mostly the monks and others who were engaged in this. They thought, oh, this is kind of like showing off or or whatever. So Jerome wrote in favor, you know, wrote in these argumentative ways promoting asceticism. He also wrote um, in favor of sort of the... Yeah, I guess we could say the use of relics, like the importance of relics, um, as as key is sort of an important part of of the church, of popular piety. Um, and so, you know, he wasn't simply just like a, a scriptural translator and commentator. He also um, he he also could get a little bit worked up and, and, and mix it up. Um, nevertheless, his you know he's known of, of course as a, a doctor of the church, and and his, his contribution in translating scripture is um, you know remains among the paramount achievements of sort of paramount scholarly achievements of the early of the early period. Um, next we have Augustine, who um, I mean it's hard to summarize to be honest i mean i think bidmar's treatment of augustine is good i mean i don't have like a ton of you know really different or, or or new things to add on top of that but just to lament you know figures like augustine and you know thomas aquinas and others who who are so important to the um sort of intellectual development of of the church and their role in church history you know in the realm of ideas of theological developments is just so massive that it it feels like an injustice you know to to say well i'm going to cover augustine in like you know 40 minutes or half an hour or something we should have a whole course just on him um one thing i'll say about him you know in big picture i think you could make an argument you know after paul right the the individual who had sort of the lar- who has had the largest influence on historical christianity to this day you, you very well might say is augustine and, and the reason I'm and again it's just I, i'm not you know going to go crazy trying to you know defend this people could have other people that they highlight the reason i think you can make a pretty strong case for augustine is you don't you don't drop off he doesn't drop off at the reformation right So Augustine, you know, was tremendously influential in the early church and and even into the Middle Ages, for sure, and in many ways, you know, is recovered by um, John Calvin, especially, and some other reformers. So if the Middle Ages, we start to think of scholasticism, Thomas Aquinas, obviously St. Thomas has a huge influence on Catholic theology and essentially sort of systematic Catholic theology as we know it is basically... Thomistic and and that's all all good and like you won't get any disagreement from me on that, um, but because but they didn't you know the the Protestant reformers saw themselves very much sort of as casting aside um, you know the approach of someone like Saint Thomas, and especially John Calvin saw himself also as sort of being influenced by and really being the interpreter of Augustine and so. You know, in a in a sort of broad global Christianity sense, you know, Augustine exerts influence on both Catholic and Protestant um, churches beyond you know beyond the middle of the 16th century in a way that you know a lot of the other figures of uh, of the Middle Ages, for example, don't. You know, the Protestants don't really like St. Thomas. <laughs> and, you know, they don't they don't really revere him or or study his text, but. But Augustine was was very much uh, influential in, in or is influential you know, to this day in, in Protestantism. So, anyway, just an observation. Um, you know, his life uh, is so uh, his, his biography is so is seemingly so integral to his theological trajectory and development that you know sometimes I just say like a note or two about his you know about the lives of these people, but for Augustine, um, you know, it seems worth worth saying a little bit more, potentially. Um, you know, he was born to, a par- you know, his parents, one was, one was a Christian, one was not. One was essentially, you know, a pagan. So his father, a guy called Patricius, Patricius was, you know, kind of easygoing, but basically worldly, um, not a Christian, although he did embrace Christianity uh, by the end of his life. Um, seemingly more kind of um, uh, you know, interested in things of the world, let's say that. His mother was Monica, who was you know who was Christian um, and, and, and incredibly sort of devoted to her faith and and searching for you know continued deepening of her relationship with God. And so it's often thought that, you know, in Augustine you, you see uh, very clearly in some ways like the the two the, the his two parents, you know. Um, you know, the, the Monica's devotion to 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 God, which is maybe another way of saying sort of the devotion to, to the to the truth or to seeking the truth seems to drive Augustine to constantly um, you know keep searching. He's very much a, a seeker in that regard in his early life. Um, but then, like, his father's kind of more worldly um, existence uh, seemed to also influence him. And, and so you see this, like, very serious kind of intellectual, philosophical side, and then a very kind of sensual, um, worldly, uh, you know, alternate side that, that seeks for the, the pleasures and the, the good things of, uh, of this world. So he was—he um, was, he was a student of rhetoric. Uh, that was kind of his area of, of special, <clears throat> specialization. Um, he stu- so he was born—I'm sorry—he was born in North Africa, in modern-day Algeria. I didn't say that. Um, and, and, you know, he, he lives most of the time in North Africa. He studies in Carthage. Um, when he's a- around 17 years old, he sort of. Um, it enters into this relationship which will last over a decade with another woman that he doesn't marry sort of his, his mistress if you will um, with whom he has a son um, son's name was Adeodatus like um, so he has a, a son with this woman but you know continues to um, you know Deep in his studies and, and his, you know, maybe thinking about pursuing, um, an academic career or something as, as a, a teacher of rhetoric, he seems to have had a kind of initial conversion experience, if we can put it that way. Um, when he, when he first encounters probably around the year, uh, age of 19, when he first encounters Cicero, he writes much, you know, looking back. You know, much later in his life, that reading Cicero changed my affections and turned my prayers to you, O oh Lord. Now, he's writing that in the Confessions as a Christian. So this isn't like a conversion exactly to Christianity, um, and sort of kind of imperfect conversion or the the seeds of um, the seeds of conversion. But the way Augustine perceived it, it was like the sort of the beauty of Cicero's writing and the concepts that he was expressing, like, turned Augustine onto the, the pursuit of truth. Like, he, he sensed something true in Cicero um, and, and was turned toward the pursuit of truth as kind of the ultimate sort of intellectual pursuit. That, that was the only thing that has value is truth. Interestingly, in this relatively early period, he, he, he does look at the scriptures. He begins studying the scriptures, but he writes of this time, they appeared to me unworthy to be compared with the dignity of Cicero. And, you know, we tend not to think it's, it's hard maybe, you know, I mentioned Cicero in other contexts, but it, it's hard maybe to realize in our modern context like the aesthetics of language and writing, you know, were tremendously important in the ancient world. And, you know, Cicero's um, Latin is, you know, uh, it sounds like, I mean, I'm gonna like get a a renewal of my lifetime membership into the, like the dork club, but like Cicero's Latin is really (laughs) beautiful. I mean, to study it and, and to translate um his text is uh, i mean it's among the he's among the greatest latin writers it's just that simple his poetry his his prose everything uh his you know speeches and the aesthetics of that experience mattered in a way on top of simply whatever the message was it's like the equivalent i guess that we have in in english is like you know shakespeare or something or or like sort of like the, the Queen's English or whatever seems like somehow more compelling than than people writing in shorthand on Twitter, right? You know, like LOL, like uh, whatever, whatever the other abbreviations are. In the ancient world, like it mattered a lot more, like the structure, the appearance, the, the aesthetics of, of language. And so um, to to Augustine, the classical Latinists were just Far, it must have been far closer to the truth because the writing was was so much more sort of beautiful and powerful than than what you perceived in scripture so he kind of has a near miss if you will um, with with the Bible and with with um, Christianity in in um, you know this early period his first major kind of commitment if you will to a particular I don't know, maybe maybe you could call it a religion or close enough, a religious system, is uh, his contact with Manichaeism. Uh, it's on your outline, but let me just type it in. Um, this is another one of those... Hang on one sec. This is another one of those um, terms that that you know sometimes can can shift in terms of the exact meaning but it was um you know basically a a very dualistic um a dualistic system different than gnosticism but it shared that dualism that held that you know the spirit spiritual world this this the spiritual realm is good and the material world the created realm is evil and um you really got into this uh you really got into this system for for several years um and and, and kind of was a dev- devotee of, of manichaeism um it's during this time that you know we get this sort of fam- fam- famous prayer i guess um you know, he, when he's thinking back on his life, you know, you may have heard this um, uh, prayer: "Grant me ch- chastity and continence, but not yet." Um, and and the reason it's sort of emblematic of this time in his life is, you know, I, I said he had this like sort of very sensual, kind of passionate side, as well as you know, obviously having this woman with whom he was in a, engaged in a long-term relationship with um but as a as a mannequin like he you know sort of believed that the flesh was kind of evil well not kind of was evil and so you know sex and reproducing you know creating life all all those things like were not really good um and, and that would be to totally renounce all bodily desires and instead focus one's entire being, you know, one's entire existence on spiritual realm. Um, And yet for him, you know, this is incredibly, incredibly difficult um, to do. He eventually, I'm simplifying, but he eventually, you know, finds Manichaeism sort of illogical or untenable. It was like he couldn't handle the the extreme dualism, dualism of it, um, and you know, Manichaeism, in a way, is kind of the Gnostic view that there must be some split way of understanding God, because the God of creation can't be sort of like the real God, God the, the the highest God, because the one who created, you know, Earth and animals, you know, created the material world, created something that was evil. Augustine eventually, you know, finds the logic of this, un, you know, unworkable for himself, and says, you know, ultimately, I don't think that creation is uniformly evil, um, and and I don't think that God could be split in terms of like the good, you know, the good spiritual God and then the less good creator God. So he kind of exits this um, Manichaean period if you will um and continues to search uh it's at this point he kind of leaves north africa for italy um spent some time in rome and then and then eventually makes his way to the city of milan he receives an appointment there to teach rhetoric in milan and it's there that he meets um you know He was, Augustine himself was educated in rhetoric, was, was, you know, a very effective orator and speaker, but, you know, he came in contact with one of, you know, the greatest sort of Christian uh, preachers at the time, Ambrose, then Bishop of Milan. Ambrose would exert, you know, tremendous influence on Augustine, although it deserves to be said, because sometimes in thinking about Augustine's life, and the role that Saint Ambrose played in it, you know, it's like, well, you know, he just kind of converted, like, you know, so relatively quickly. That Ambrose was just so compelling. Um, but really, it took time. I mean, it, it was a process. You know, for several years, Augustine lived in Milan and and kind of uh, tried on for size different other worldviews. Um, you know, one, you know, sort of period was like it's kind of skeptical you know, uh, embodied a kind of doubting mindset. Then he took, you know, took up something that was a movement at the time that was called Neoplatonism, which was essentially like a kind of recovery of Plato's philosophy as as a worldview. Um, so again, he continues to search, uh, you know, without exactly finding any real satisfactory outcome. Um, But for for several years, he's in Milan and and kind of trying on these additional um, kind of worldviews, if you will. However, um, it all comes to a head, if you will, um, as Augustine learns more and more about, he continues to learn more about Christianity under the the influence of Ambrose and and listening to him preach. But he also learned, uh, came into contact with and read about The monks uh, in the monastic tradition in you know other parts of the world especially like the you know the monastic life in egypt and he he finds it um both puzzling and challenging to himself in many ways in that he reads these stories of these monks who have basically no education who haven't traveled you know, across the elite cities of North Africa and Italy, who haven't, you know, read Cicero, who haven't done all of these things that Augustine himself had, had, has done, and yet they can face temptation for, you know, to, to eat or to, you know, to live with worldly comforts or to sex or to whatever. They face these temptations and they they put them, they cast them aside. And Augustine his whole life seemingly is unable to do precisely that thing. And he kind of asks himself, how can it be these, I have all of this learning and sophistication and knowledge and whatever. And I can't, uh, you know, I can't say no to that ribeye in that glass of red wine or that beautiful woman, you know, as the case may be. Um, and yet this, Totally uneducated, ignorant, simple uh, monk in Egypt seems totally immune to any of those things, and a sort of deep sense of, of shame and confusion um, kind of fills him, and he really um, starts to get in, go into this self-condemnatory uh, spiral, if you will, you know, about how how awful he is and. You know he's kind of a failure and this kind of thing, and and then so we have this sort of famous narrative around his conversion, which he gives to us, where you know it it he he sort of is in going out into his garden and he hears the voice of a child kind of in a sing sing songy way from a neighboring house uh, saying tole et lege," take take up and read, pick pick up and read, and there's a copy of uh you know the the new testament nearby and he reads and he sort of you know the way it the way it reads in the confessions is it's like he kind of just picks up the, the the bible and just opens it and kind of wherever his eyes fall you know like this is going to be a symbol uh, or, or this is going to have a significant meaning for him and and he falls uh his eyes fall on ch- uh, chapter 13 of romans where paul says not in rioting and drunkenness not in chambering and wantonness not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And so, it's um, Romans 13, 12 through 14, and he has this kind of um calm, like reassurance, or, or assurance, maybe it's not a reassurance, that, you know, through God's grace, he, he only through God's grace can he overcome you know, the, the sins of the flesh that, that have so, so stymied him. Um, and from this day forward, he, you know, uh, is set on the path of, of becoming a Christian. This is in the year 386, sort um, of late summer of 386. Uh, and, and then he, you know, takes some time to study. He's baptized in 387 by Ambrose. In the city of Milan, the story of what happens next is very sad. After he so he's baptized, he's a Christian. He's going to go back home to North Africa. On this journey, uh, his his mother dies, and then so he kind of winds up spe- spending a little bit of time unexpectedly in Rome. But then he decides to. Uh, go back to um, back to, to North Africa, and shortly after his return, his son died. I think this was over a period of about six months that he lost both his his mother and his son. You know, after be, becoming a Christian, and so he, you know, obviously this was, was very difficult and very sad. He thought maybe this was a sign, if you will, that he was being called to the monastic life. You know, his, his family, in a sense, had been, had been taken uh, from him, and, and he thought that maybe this was, um, you know, his, his calling, if you will. Um, you know, it's with that in mind that he goes to the city of Hippo, again, also in, in North Africa, in modern-day Algeria. He's ordained uh, a priest there. And four years after becoming ordained a priest is ordained a, a bishop or is, yeah, ordained a bishop. Um, it's thought that he was kind of made bishop by by popular acclaim. He was like a, a helping bishop at first. There was an older guy that was in charge, but then after he died, um, you know he becomes the bishop of Hippo, where he would um, where he would remain until his death in, in 430. Um, so that's his life in, in in sort of broad strokes. There are a number of ways you can think about trying to characterize, um, you know, his, his contribution and, and and his work. So, you know, just trying to hit some of the highlights of his theological contributions, as well as the, um, you know the major literary contributions sort of that, that he made um just kind of run through a, a couple of these you know the works the two works that are most you know most widely read from augustine are the confessions and the city of god written in, in sort of very different times in his life The confessions is written in the year around the year 400 it, as you sure know it was an account of his life and his conversion it's um an essentially a new at that time a new literary genre that of a kind of spiritual autobiography there really isn't a there really isn't a similar I mean to the extent that Paul's letters when put together kind of have that characteristic you know maybe you could say that but in terms of you know, Post-apostolic age within the within the Christian um, Christian world. This is sort of the first of its kind spiritual autobiography. Of course, there's so many you know beautiful texts. Uh, you know, our, our hearts are restless, and 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 so so many other things you can sort of read and be moved by. And part of what made the work so distinctive and unique at the time was that. It's as if, I mean, I, I kind of like the contrast of when when I can talk about Augustine the same time that we talk about the the councils. You know, it's it's one thing to talk about God in these philosophical terms, and and of course it's I mean I think as we see necessary and important. You know, the hypostase three hypostases in one fusia and and you know to really really think carefully about you know these questions but when you do that god becomes like incredibly abstracted and and like you're thinking about you know well what is the sort of meaning of substantia and, and all of these these things that are again very important and essential um but distant and what augustine brings is a closeness uh, he he is writing to a God that is like right there with him and, and in his life and sort of a, a personal vital relationship that, and I'm not saying he's the first to ever do this and saying like, it was just such a stark example of, uh, expressing a kind of vital relationship to a, a living God that, you know, was tremendously influential, um, you know, after there's so many sort of prayers, if you will, where he, they're, they, they they take the form of him, you know, just saying something. Um You know, I, I will love you, O Lord, and thank you. Um uh, Where did it go? Sorry. <laughs> and confess you and confess your name, because you have put away from me those wicked and nefarious acts of mine. To your grace I attribute it, and to your mercy, you have melted away my sin as if it were ice. You know, a God who melts away your sin as if it's ice is just as important to conceptualize as the three hypostasis in one usia. I think. I mean, you know, I think so. And so it's, it's all sort of the comprehensive beauty of, of the or what the early church is doing. You get the Cappadocian Fathers and the Augustans, right? You, you get, um, you know, this really sophisticated, intricate, Philosophically oriented theological development. At the same time, you get, you know, maybe you, maybe the greatest sort of work of spiritual introspection in in history. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's up there. And so, uh, Confessions is is tremendously important. Sort of, if that's kind of towards the early part of his his like post-conversion life. Uh, like 10 years in, let's say, being a Christian, he writes the city of God as a kind of, you know, towards the end of his life, as the Roman Empire is crumbling, and, and uh, you know, the barbarians are sort of overtaking, you know, all of these important cities and whatever, you know, it, it's a kind of political work, um, responding to those that are blaming Christianity for... The fall of the Roman Empire and he says you know that is not that is not what's driving this there's a city of God and a city of man if you will um, and and the, the goal of the Christian is to to be a citizen of the city of God ultimately while also being you know a good citizen of the the earthly city uh, however you know the earthly city is sort of corrupting and um, drawn to You know things that are ultimately harmful, you know, as a result of sin. Whereas the city of God exists both, you know, in you know in in the end times when Jesus redeems the whole world, but also in the current time in in the um, in the place of the church itself, which we saw as a representative of the city of God on earth. Um, There's so much more I could say about the city of God, but with 10 minutes left, I want to hit some other. You know some other controversies and, and theological contributions um you know one thing uh it's worth mentioning he plays a role in a controversy um that is mostly confined to north africa the donatist controversy um or don't you you know is an opponent of donatism it's named after Pernatius, who, um, this has to do with kind of something we've already seen before with novation and the novation system. Um, this has to do with once again, the, the traitors, the so-called traditores of the, the persecutions in the early 300s, the Diocletian persecutions. You know, I I think I mentioned that one of the things that the government did, the the Roman Empire did, was try to seize all of the the sacred texts, and so, um, you know, some of the the priests and and bishops, you know, were sort of more willing than others to hand over um, the, the text, which, you know, the word for that was traditores, which is where we get the word traitor from, and the... So what's interesting about the Donatus is, is he's actually not like the immediate um, successor, but the second successor of um, uh, an opponent of sort of somebody who a bishop who had been a, a traditore, who had handed over the text, but had sort of uh, come back and and um, what's the word? Sort of made done some penance and apologized to the community and. And the question at the heart of, of donatism was well, there are a couple, but like the, the, the really key one was um, are the sacraments sort of performed by um, a priest or a bishop who had been a traditore, who had betrayed the faith? Are those sacraments valid legitimate? Um, and And donatism, the Donatist view held that the sanctity or lack thereof of the minister, if you will, affected the the legitimacy of the sacrament. And and this was argued about and ultimately Donatism is condemned. Augustine has a you know a role to play in speaking out against it in that that the power of the sacraments, if you will, is not a function of the ministers themselves but rather god's grace and especially god's grace working through the church and so um this is where we get like the the uh, you know the the understanding of ex opera operata and all of that where it's not it's not the work. it's again the sort of the grace of of the sacramental grace supplied by you know sort of God's free giving of this sort of sacramental economy that, that the sacraments have merit, not because the priest that says Mass is particularly holy. And that speaks to, so his role against Donatism is important, and that speaks to um, a number of things, but, you know, Augustine is known as the sort of the doctor of grace, right? The doctor in the sense meaning teacher, in that he was the great um sort of uh, he you know his arguably one of his sort of greatest contributions was in his his understanding and teaching on God's grace, um, which was a function of his understanding of, of original sin and and sort of the fallen state of of mankind which he thought was pretty pretty rough right pretty severe um the the consequence of Adam's sin you know was in fact transmitted down through, the generations, and such that we're all we're all um, affected by it, and yet, you know, he rejected sort of he had previously rejected the sort of all the way position of like manichaeism, which is to say that all all cre- created all of creation is bad. Instead, uh, Augustine focuses on God's grace as redeeming creation, including us, including mankind. And so for Augustine, salvation comes by God's grace. And in that sense, it's wholly, wholly, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, undeserved and wholly free. In one place he writes, I think this is helpful, wages is paid as a recompense for military service. It is not a gift. So in other words, if, if you do if you serve in the military or whatever, you, you or do any job, basically you get paid. Like your wages are a function. Uh, it's, it's, it's compensation for the thing you did. It, it, it doesn't make sense to call that a gift. So when, so he goes on to say, wherefore it says the wages of sin is death. In other words, the thing we earn, you know, if the, th- if the thing you earn when you work is money, the thing you earn when you sin is death, right? That's what, that's what the Bible's saying. Um, he says, to show that death was not inflicted undeservedly, but as the due recompense of sin. In other words, you know, we deserve it. And he goes on to say, but a gift, unless it is wholly unearned, is not a gift at all. We are to understand then that man's good deserts are themselves the, good, the gift of God, so that when these obtain the recompense of eternal life, it is simply grace given for grace. So the... The only way we can get from what we're what we deserve, what we're owed by virtue of our sin, which is inescapable thanks to the consequence of original sin, the only way we can get past that to salvation is is by God's grace. Now he does go on to talk about sort of a role to play in, in cooperating with that grace. However, it's it's a very strong doctrine of you know the, the power of grace. Um, closely associated with that. Are the sacraments in the church? So this is where you know Calvin and others kind of avert their eyes in the in the 16th century. Some of this stuff, but he, he certainly you know sees the church as the mediator of of grace through the sacraments. Um, you know one one sort of other before I I finish with um, Pelagianism. One other uh, interesting thing in thinking about the church is that, you know, he's not a player in the, uh, the all of these councils, if you will. Like, he's not a key figure in any specific doctrinal definition that we looked at. But he was certainly very interested in it, and he certainly recognized the authority of the church to make these definitions. And he writes that... Um, uh, oh, where did it go? Bear with me. There's a great quote from him. Oh, yeah. In, in talking about the... Um, sort of in talking about the Trinity, right? Um, he writes, When it is asked, what are the three? In, in speaking of the Trinity, human language labors under great poverty of speech. Yet we say three persons not in order to express it, but in order not to be silent. In other words, there's something sort of ineffable, uh, something mysterious in the sense that God is infinite and and beyond us in in ways we can't even understand. And so, you know, we shouldn't think that, you know, the particular expression of, you know, hypostasis and usia or whatever... Fully captures what God is, but rather we say this in order not to be silent, in order to say something. Um, you know, he tries to teach about the Trinity in a number of different ways. One, one of which I think is, is kind of good is um, sort of the analogy of like to the mind of memory, understanding, and will. So memory, understanding, and will. In a way, you know, Augustine's trying to say all, all sort of are referring to the same. Thing, same substance of the mind that performs them, and yet they're kind of distinct manifestations or persons of the mind, the way the Trinity is, and then famously, lover, loved, and love, as sort of another kind of Trinity that exp- that that meet that that can be this that is the same thing while having kind of different three different expressions. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Augustine certainly was not um, uninterested, even if his contributions were more in areas like grace and original sin and, and predestination to some degree. Um, he certainly wasn't, you know, uh, oblivious to or uninterested in the sort of Christological and, and Trinitarian conversations that were ongoing. Um, we don't—we're out of time, so I can't say anything about Pelagianism. But let me just pause uh, to ask if there are any. Any questions about anything I've said about August? Uh, well, once again, thanks very much, everyone. I hope um, I hope you have a really good week. Um, please do let me know. You know, send me an email or call me if, if there's anything you're not sure about or not following. Want me to clarify? Just let me know. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, like this is by far the largest of these zoom classes that I've had. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big group and I just would, would hate for the size to be an impediment to somebody, you know, if you, if you want to ask a question or or something's not clear, but you feel like, Oh, you know, it's kind of a big group or something. Uh, I'm, I'm around, you know, the other, the rest of the week. So please don't hesitate because you know, the important thing is that we all kind of, uh, you know, learn as, as we're going. So uh, I just want to, you know, again, offer that if, if that's, um, would be helpful to anyone thanks very much and uh see you next monday okay thank you good night take care thank you Good 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 night take care